0: Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today's guest is Bradley Tusk, whose name you might not know, but he has a really compelling book coming out called The Fixer. And uh, Bradley runs a company called Tusk Strategies. He also runs a VC fund and um, uh, also um, an organization designed to get people to be able to vote, a uh, foundation to get people to, to be able to vote in a more uh, effective way. Uh, an easy manner, more people, disenfranchised people, everybody. But before that, he led a fascinating, uh, life, um, came up through, uh, the world of politics and, and ended up at the intersection of, of politics and tech. You're going to hear about Rod Blagojevich a little bit. And, uh, because at 29, he was the deputy governor of, uh, Illinois, uh, not Blagojevich. Blagojevich was the governor But Bradley was the deputy governor and and, uh, ran the state and uh, accomplished a lot at a young age and uh, hasn't slowed down at all. So, Bradley, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. You know, I haven't had many um, pure business successes on the show. Uh, It's some bias of mine, I think, because I grew up around that. I understand it in a way that I don't have as much curiosity about it generally. Sure, yeah. But us, you know, the two of us met. We have a lot of friends in common. Yep. And then reading the book really did make me want to talk to you because, one, um, although we're engaged in the story because you do a good job of bringing us into what you're thinking, you don't try to paint yourself as more moral than your surroundings, other than in the governor's mansion in, in, in Chicago. In that
1: scenario, <laughs> well, like well, your only average there. human baseline was more moral than the surroundings. So, <laughs> I wasn't exceptional. I was just average, and everyone else was way below average. Yes, you, but you don't spend a lot of
0: time trying to say, but in this situation, I remembered the good of—it's no. you. you uh, it's a very pragmatic book.
1: Yeah, I tried to write just a totally transparent, honest book, and it's funny because I, I know that there will be people who will be upset about what I wrote. There are people who will dispute it, and I already kind of have my my retort already planned, which is it's a work of nonfiction, right? So like if Chuck Schumer gets upset that the book paints him as someone who's just desperately hungry for media, and the book otherwise isn't very complimentary of him, you know that's just the reality of it. Right? You can't have been as communication. Well, you bury in a footnote. Do you
0: do bury in a footnote that. Um, you guys haven't repaired your relationship from what he perceived to be a slight.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, and the book does have these really uh, fascinating footnotes. And 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 by the way, people always ask me questions, uh, uh, po- just one moment of this, about how to do podcasts and podcast interviews. Read the book. It's very helpful if you actually read the book before the person <laughs> comes in. So here, what I'm most interested in is how you developed your ability to diagnose complex strategic situations—that is, how you train yourself to subsume your emotional reactions, stay yeah. clear-headed, and patient enough to take apart the situation and find your path through—because that is a is really uh, repeated over and over in in, in the book. Yeah, uh, everyone around you reacts emotionally; everyone has something they want, and you find a way to see the matrix. So th- that's not purely an innate skill. Can you just talk about? Yeah, that?
1: I mean, it's it's interesting. So. Um, I went to law school and then never practiced a day of law in my life. Um, and people all like the me. time right, will say to me, should I go to law school? And I say, it may not be different than what you say, do you want to practice law? And the answer is usually no, because if they're asking me, then clearly they want to do something else. And my answer is, well, then you probably shouldn't go to law school. Um, but I remember it's so when I was deputy governor, I remember one day it did dawn on me, because my job was basically I would sit in my office and all day parade people would come in, with a situation, a problem, an issue, and they would be emotional, and there'd be all this extraneous information. And what I really realized is I need to know like a couple of facts, get a couple of pieces of information, ask a couple of questions, and then make a decision. And in that job, would, everything, everything was moving so fast that I made a lot of decisions. And even if they were wrong, it was almost more important just to keep making decisions, to keep the state. Running, but I do. I did look back to law school and say, you know, you read those those long cases, and you've got to pick out the holding of the case, which is you know, a couple of sentences. Um, that was actually pretty useful. Now, I went to University you know, of Chicago, which was kind of. Completely impractical school for anyone who really wants to go practice law. But if you want to be a a judge or an academic stuff like that, it's fantastic. So that training was useful to me. So I, I wouldn't say go to law school for that one skill because three years and most people like two hundred thousand dollars now or something like that is is a lot of time and money. Um, but I think that was probably the, the beginning of it from my perspective.
0: Well, it it's true that law school trains you. Because like you, I went to law school never practice. It's true law school trains you to. Uh, absorb the information and pick apart the various lines of argument yep. um, on either side yep. instantly. You do that. That happens, but many people go to law school and we see them as members of Congress yelling and <laughs> sputtering, right? Yep. So I'm asking a, a slightly different question, which is: What is in your internal makeup? Do you think, and what have you? How have you tried to groom that part of yourself to think? to to find the patience to think strategically. I'm asking less about the skill and more about uh, the internal setup to apply the skill.
1: It's it's a fair question. Um, And and the answer might be, although this doesn't make me sound great, it might just be arrogance, quite frankly, which is um, I'm usually able to look at a situation and say, here's what I think should be done – and I'm usually able to move towards that outcome either because I can move other people to my will to a certain extent, or I'm willing to say no and say unpopular things. And as a result, usually, if you work harder than everyone else and you have a stronger will than everyone else you tend to get to the right place. And then when enough repetitions, like anything, it just becomes in- inherent, right? So to a certain extent, it's probably like I think I know better. To a certain extent, there's part of me that always wants to say no and fuck you to everything. Um, there's part of me that wants to get along. You know, I'm like a screw-up human being like every screw-up human oh, sure. being. But I think when it, when you add it all together, what it tends to result in is um, enough confidence or hubris or whatever it is to kind of know the the solution that makes sense to me, and I guess my mind works in a less emotional, more logical, rational always. way. Always
0: has it always? Yeah. I when think you were so. in ninth grade, you were able so. to uh, deal with like uh, criticism, you know, from when, an authority without just go, you know, instead of saying "fuck you," you'd find your way. To to do what you had to do to enact. Sure, theater, basically. I
1: mean when right. I was in ninth grade, I was one of those kids that was really good at dealing with adults and really bad at dealing with other kids. Uh huh. So um, from that standpoint, yeah, I could sort of figure out like, okay, I want to do this or I want to do that, and how do I make it? Where'd happen? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in in Brooklyn and then on Long Island. Um, what high school did you go to? Lawrence High School in Nassau County, uh, right next to JFK Airport. And um, so you know, so from that standpoint. I kind of always understood, okay, I want to achieve X. Here's what I have to do to get there. And there's multiple routes, just multiple, to skin a cat, right? Um, So uh, so I think from that standpoint, I had been doing that all the way through. Um, And then just as time went on, I got more and more confident in my ability to at least reach a logical conclusion.
0: Yeah. When – to one – so what was the big difficulty you had with people your own age? Was it the arrogance thing? I and mean, I relate to this. Was it probably, you were – Probably some in, – in You basically yeah. were like um, recognize my the, – the fact that you guys don't recognize my innate specialness. I think that was
1: probably some of it. I was Look, I was small and funny looking. Um, I really wanted people to like me, and I have learned over time that's the worst way for people to actually yeah, like you. Uh, there was definitely some arrogance, and you put that all together. And also just look, the same independence – that allows me to probably make pretty rational decisions in the heat of the moment. The same independence that has allowed me to have a reasonably interesting career to date um, was also, pl- I'm sure, at play when I was a kid. And, you know, you can you can show your independence, and that works on one level. But on the other hand, it's hard to ingratiate yourself into a group.
0: A couple times in the book, it seems that you're in these meetings. People ask you for counsel. Um Long before, and, and the structure of the book's great. As a writer, I really love that you start with this question about Uber and then go back and then bring us back to That was my editor's idea. That was smart, yeah. though, really smart, because it gets us focused on something that's happening now. And, of course, you couldn't go back and re- revise when de Blasio then won. Right. But, um, but it's a great look at de Blasio and what uh, what they did. But often people will present a problem, and you will... Uh, so the, 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 the bad instinct that often the, the smartest person in the room has is to answer very quickly, how did you train yourself to to uh, not just do the glib, quick thing, but to figure out, because a lot of people can work hard, but but figuring out where to apply that work is a big...
1: Right. So I think it's maybe two different questions for that, right? So on, Take it apart. On, on the Dis-im- first one... Disabugate? Dis- ab- What's the word? So in tech, we use disintermediate dis- 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 all the time. That's good. I like that. Uh, though I don't think that's what the right word yeah. is for oh, this. So go ahead. Give use, me the two we things. We use that a lot. Yeah. So... so the, the the two things. The one is, I think sometimes I am totally guilty of giving a too quick, too glib answer. But at least in this particular case, and just for the for the listeners, um, back in 2015, the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, introduced a bill to the New York City Council that would have put a cap on Uber's growth at 1%. Um, that was incredibly untenable for Uber. The city council supported the bill as well. The city council speaker never in New York City history had the mayor and the city council speaker both wanted to pass a bill and it not happened. They slated it for passage within 30 days. I'm sitting in the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. It's raining. I can't get on a flight. I'm getting bumped. And Travis Kalanick, who was then the CEO of Uber, calls me and and says, hey, we've got this problem. And in some ways, the reason why I said, let me think about it and come back to you is there was no obvious answer. I was like, holy shit, this has never been done before. And then I got really lucky on the flight back to New York. That kind of hit me that if we tried running a campaign to their left because – both de Blasio and the Speaker, then Melissa Mark Favorito, really position themselves as these hardcore progressives, and they take great you know, um, emotional and, and sort of uh, self-righteous delight in that, that if we could actually run the campaign at them from the left and make them seem racist oh, and bigoted and everything idea, else, yeah. would they know how to handle it? Answer, it turns out, they had no idea how to handle it to the point where less than a month later, they pulled the bill completely and we had won. Um, so I think just... Knowing what you don't know is a skill that I've been working on a lot over the years. Um, and that's just as important as knowing what you know, because the reality is it is such a big world, right? And like, I'm an expert arguably in a couple of things, but it's, it's like a couple out of like a million things, right? And think, and the good news is you can hire other people, you can talk to other people, you can get advice and information, but it really helps understand like, I don't know this. Well,
0: it's a lovely thing in the book that you point out the people who uh, knew more than you in certain areas or were helpful to you in certain areas. I mean, you, you certainly talk about the ways in which you saw, yeah. saw things, inflection points that other people didn't, but you are good at spreading that stuff around. But your book also, uh, because we were just talking about de Blasio and how they hold themselves out as these progressives and how you figured out how to attack them from the left. And this pragmatism is, as I said, inspiring in a certain way. Because if you're level-headed and you do the work, you do the research, you think until you have the right answer and then you go after it, you sort of show that you can win against these people um, who have very few inputs that... I mean, you talk a lot about the inside and outside game in the book, but very few inputs that matter to them. And if you can figure out what the inputs are. But the book's fucking depressing. (laughs) Because... um, you really, it's the opposite of watching um, The American President, you know, by Aaron Sorkin. I mean, you are really showing us, and this is sort of like the book hidden within your book, right? The book hidden within the book is this book about the grimy, uh, self-serving, limited world of governance as it exists in America in 2018.
1: Yeah, in fact, you know what? So my gut is that, That world is purely human nature and it existed in the Grecian times and the Roman times and everything else. The only difference is the rest of the world, and especially media and internet, has evolved to a way to take the worst tendencies of politicians and put them on hyperspeed. So what is this all about? In my view, and I say this in the book, and I'm sure it will make some people upset, but 99.9% of politicians are desperately insecure, self-loathing people that don't have the talent to make it in any other business and can't live without the validation and affirmation that comes with running for office and holding office. What that means is if you want to figure out what a politician is going to do on any given issue, it's really very simple. they take a look and say... Here's who votes in my primary. And because of g- gerrymandering, that's really what determines election. I mean, election. you point out to
0: 218,000 people elect or something yeah, like t- 282 that. 282 out to de Blasio. 282 elected.
1: people in the city. Right. right. So, and this, by the way, this is true on the congressional level. Right, and then three-something the, the second time. Yeah, it's 310, I think, the second time. Um, they're very, li- even if they're idiots in one way, they're extremely rational in another way, which is they truly understand what actual factors go into electing them and unelecting them? And they make every decision based on, is this more likely to get me reelected or unelected? Is this more likely to help me win the next office or more likely to hinder that? And that's it, because they have such a deep hole in their psyche. They can't live without the validation that this office provides. So it doesn't matter how right the morality is on climate change or guns or healthcare, education or anything else. It's like saying to them, you can't have oxygen anymore.
0: So there are only two politicians in the whole book um, about whom you write positively in a way. I mean, three. You don't you don't rip on Hillary, but Schumer. Although you do, I can imagine being Schumer and not being able to see that in fact you 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 write in incredibly flatteringly about him, primarily. Yeah, because you say he does the work. Yep, and he actually cares. He does. And wants to serve, yep. but that the top note with him is the politician's top note is the need for attention, the need to be in the press, and all that right. shit. And Bloomberg, you clearly believe Michael yeah. Bloomberg is the platonic ideal of what a statesperson should be.
1: Yeah, I mean, and just so the listeners understand, I worked for him at City Hall. I ran his mayoral campaign. Yeah, you, you got him elected in the third campaign. Yeah, you were a, around enough him enough before that. Enough exposure to man to make a really reasoned decision about sort of how he is. So it's not based on like, hey, I saw him speak three times and he was so great. I love Obama, well, whatever it is. I, I do love Obama, but that's, I don't know Obama well enough beyond that. Yeah, you don't Bloomberg, say anything bad about
0: Obama. book. No, the, uh, the, I mean, you talk about a yeah. strategy you uh, deployed to, to control well. Obama in a political, yeah, uh, in, in a yeah. mayoral race, but you don't say anything bad about him. No. but But w- do you think, that it's uh, that inertia, me that it's inexorable. We are in an inexorable decline because there are so few uh, there are so few uh, statesmen and women drawn to this profession or able to succeed in the profession, and so um, this need to serve their base because they realize that the donor base, which leads to their electoral base, predominates so much more heavily. Do you you think it's – one, do you think it's changeable? And two, can you shed a little light because you – this might have been beyond the scope of the book, but I know you saw it because I can tell how you think. What is the lie they tell themselves?
1: So the lie they tell – let's work back. Yeah, sure. The lie they tell themselves, and this is consistently is – it's more important for me to be here than any individual issue because overall, I'm doing— I'll do good. Correct. You know, I believe in these progressive values and these conservative values, whatever it is. So my vote for the party is needed. My vote for the committee is needed. And, that, and the, most people who are complaining don't understand 99% of what I have to do all day. And so sure, on an individual issue, I may look selfish or I may look weak, but ultimately, my being here is far more important than not. Um, so that they all tell them. So, so, so if we look at the now Uber um,
0: let's disambiguate the Uber
1: <laughs> I still uh, think that's a word g- yeah. it is, Yo, is yeah.
0: okay. <laughs> I did it because I thought it was a word it, it, it turns out to be um, but here I'm going to show you the word because it's a podcast he's telling the truth a word. It's a word. <laughs> Disambiguation refers to the removal of ambiguity by making something clear. Narrows down the meaning of words so that you understand no, them. So let's take understand. this all yeah. apart. Yeah. So, um, but, but if, we, if, we, if we separate out and just go down to like sort of the ideal of what Uber was versus the cabs, not, not where Uber's is, not, yeah. not necessarily where Uber is t- today, yep. all the various uh, issues. What we talk about in the book is that de Blasio presents himself as uh, progressive, But that the medallion owners who are a had a kind of a now I know a lot about the medallion thing had a separate from this had a plantation like operation going some combination of plantation and um those uh rent to buy stores you know what do you call those stores where they pay layaway plans right that's what they had because they would they would buy these um taxi cab medallions the cab drivers, most people know this, would have to work four, five, six hours of their shift. Just to pay back. Just to pay back yeah. the interest on what it would cost to have the medallions. And the corruption was there was this limited number of medallions that was put in. Was that a, a statutory?
1: Yeah. It's, it's New York City law from for decades. That the, the
0: Taxi Limousine con- yeah. Commission controls the number of medallions ostensibly for safety, but in truth, t- to keep this protected class Monopoly. of people it's a rich. Cartel. Yeah. Right. So how would those people have argued that that system was the better system? How would they have told themselves that was what to do? And why didn't most New Yorkers understand until you guys came around?
1: Right. So the the taxi medallion owners, I don't think they even need to lie to themselves. All they care about is making money. Oh yeah, works. for sure. So the politicians who were then doing their bidding. And one of the way, them
0: I personally like. I grew up with him, but uh, uh,
1: not Gene Friedman.
0: No, a- a- Andy Merstein I like don't know. personally. Okay. Uh- <laughs> he owns a lot of them, and he's a great guy. All
1: right, there has to be one, right? Um, So if you're a politician – and just to be clear, New York City is an easy thing to talk about because people are interested in New York and they know about it. But this played out in almost every single city in the country, really all over the world, quite frankly. So what your average politician who is doing bidding told themselves was a few things. Number one – I can't this, this system is so screwed up and I can't win unless I raise money. And these guys are an incredible source of money. And this issue is a relatively minor thing in the big scheme of things, right? So if I'm here protecting the right to abortion or the right to of a fetus to not be aborted or whatever it is, these kind of big moral questions, um, this is just kind of penny ante shit. So if I can get the money I need to run free election on this kind of stuff no harm, no foul. That's the main thing they tell themselves. Uh, Beyond that, they start constructing narratives. So, for example, if you're de Blasio, you're saying, oh, Uber, big Silicon Valley company, multi-billion dollar valuation, you know, these suburbans all lined up and clogging Park Avenue. I'm against that. And whenever it's me, de Blasio, hero of the people against big bad corporation, I win, right? So he looked at this and said, oh, this is a great dynamic for me. What he didn't understand is, yeah, that's part of Uber's business, but a lot of Uber's business are people from the boroughs who can't get into Manhattan to uh, work that this was a home. terrific argument. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I remember the, one of the, the first or second time Travis and I ever met, this was back in 2011 when I started working with Uber, I remember I wrote a radio script, I don't think we ever aired it, but the, it was for black radio, and the message was, no one knows the color of your finger when you press the button.
0: Right. Right. I remember a song from the 80s uh, by a guy called Michael Hill's Bluesland. It, it was a local, uh, he was a local band, and it was a song called Waiting for a Taxi in New yeah. York. And it was yeah. about, if you were black in New York and wanted to go uptown, it was almost impossible yeah. to get a cab. Yeah, And Uber fixes
1: that problem. Yeah, I mean, we, of all the things Uber has been accused of and Travis has been accused of, you've still yet to ever hear someone say that they couldn't get an Uber to take them where they wanted to go based on any race, socioeconomic, anything else, right? Whereas Taxi was just an incredible serial violator on that part.
0: Let's talk about Alexa skills. I have an Alexa, so this is an easy advertisement. Look, if you're like me, you're looking to simplify your life in a way that doesn't involve staring at your phone. So this is where Alexa skills come in. Whatever you're looking to do or accomplish, Alexa has a skill for that, which is accessible through your Amazon Alexa skills device. Whether you want to check the forecast, discover a new artist, or set a schedule reminder, Alexa skills can help. Browse all skills available on Alexa by visiting the Amazon Alexa Skills app. Just click on the Skills and Games tab, or online at amazon.com/skills. An easy way to find some of the best skills is to ask Alexa. Alexa, what are your best skills? Here's the thing: you know, it's not like you need to download or install any skill you want to use. You just ask Alexa to open a skill, and it'll automatically start. I'm so tempted right now to say. Alexa, and then say a skill so that you, it, your Alexa turns on, but I, I won't. Um, there are more than 30,000 skills to choose from by going to the skills storefront, amazon.com slash skills, or the skills tab in your Amazon Alexa app. I use the daily quotes sometimes, uh, just Alexa open daily quotes to get an inspirational quote. I love words of the day, so sometimes I'll do the SET word of the day. Uh, to get a definition, a spelling, sample sentence for a new word. You just say, Alexa, what's the word of the day? Which for me, I get a great feeling when I know it. And then when I don't, I also get a good feeling, which is like, well, hey, now I know this word. Try an Alexa skill today to simplify your life by simply saying, Alexa, what are your best skills? To find some of the most popular skills on any Alexa skills-enabled device. Find your favorites today. Alexa skills. Get in there. I want to go back to one human thing uh, as I'm sitting here thinking about it because I'm picturing you as a high school student having to figure out how to make all that work for yourself when it didn't. Right. So how did you start to, because so much of what you then did had to do with the way you were able to quickly build relationships yeah. and build trust with your peers.
1: Was that conscious on your part? Yeah. How, so can you walk us through sure. how that happened? So, uh, I think that'll help people. I don't think I've ever told this story before, but on my second Good. day of college- I was sitting in the dorm. Where? Penn. Yeah. Which was totally the wrong school for me to go to, because it was just a continuation of of Long Island, which didn't work for me the whole previous time, but... My parents didn't quite get that, um, so I'm sitting in the dorm, and I had just spent the summer as a cabana boy at the Sands Beach Club on Long Island. So, if anyone's seen the Flamingo Kid, it, it was like that, right? Movie, yeah. yeah, and I had a lot of cash because you're making five, six hundred bucks a week in cash. It's all tips, and all of a sudden, and I would work like an animal. So, I was I did really well in terms of getting tips. So, you leave the summer with like seven, eight thousand dollars in literal cash, right? Um, and. By being sort of insecure and never having had a lot of friends in high school, you know, the thing you the most common mistake you make is you try to impress everyone, which only goes the other way. So there's a guy in my dorm, and for some reason we were talking, and he said, "You want to play blackjack?" And I said, "Sure," which probably should have been the first tip off. (laughs) And you know, I'm down a little, a little more, ten bucks, twenty bucks, fifty bucks. By the time we're done, I'm down four thousand five hundred. No, yeah, second day of college, right? And said, "Holy shit, this is really a problem." So I go in the next day to sit sit with a guy. and I said, listen, I don't have $4,500. And, yeah, I mean, in theory I had it, but I had other expenses like books and stuff, well, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. Um, and we negotiated a deal, $600. And I went to the ATM. I got $600, and I paid him. Great deal done. Should be fine. Problem is it was such a bad deal for him. He negotiated 11 cents on the dollar that all of his friends were like, you fucking uh, idiot. You made you. You I'm, allowed him to look like a schmuck. Correct. In retrospect, I realized you got to give people more of a win than that. But I didn't know that at the time, right? Um, so he starts coming after me, threatening me. I have to move, you know, I have to move my dorm. So college was like a sort of, in many ways, an unpleasant experience because I had these people always threatening to kill me every time I ran into them. But at the same time, in a weird way, when you really hit rock bottom like that, I started carrying around like uh, a steel rod, I would wear these big boots and, and pepper spray and a lighter. And I was, but in a crazy way, although I never, they were never gonna do anything, and I never never gave him another dollar, and never heard from him again after college. Um, what it did do was it, it, it got me so low that eventually I realized kind of, fuck everyone, fuck everything, to the point where I became the aggressor, and I remember sort of looking for fights and looking, and then things in a weird way started to turn, where all of a sudden, I didn't care about anyone. I didn't want friends. I didn't really want to deal with anybody. You weren't trying to impress anybody? Anybody, right? I was just trying to basically keep my head above water. Started making friends, right? And of course, a lot of those people are still really good friends of mine today. Um, And, you know, I kind of figure that out. And I think the other thing is I was really grateful for my friends. So I think most of my friends would tell you I'm a pretty good friend. And I think the reason why is I know what it's like to not have friends. Right. So, so I, uh, you know, I'll go out of my way to see how people are doing, Going to the mess game. You want to come, something goes bad in someone's life. I make the point of checking in. How can I help? You know, over the years, I've been lucky to have a decent amount of influence. I'm able to help in a way that most people use. can. It's a great can. feeling. Um, and so I kept kind of collecting more and more friends as a result. Um, And you learned how to be a good friend. Yeah, yeah. In fact, when I turned 40, I remember I had a a 40th birthday party a couple years ago in in New Orleans. Like, 60 people flew down to celebrate with me. And I was, like, so gratified. And it was sort of like the absolute end of the story, right, from what had happened in college and childhood. Except being hurt by the people who didn't come, deciding whether or not their reason was valid. No, and you a can't few do years, that. I know, you I can't got it over can't it. Do that. Taking a few years to get it over it, but I did. I'm, everyone's wow, cool. that's but, horrible.
0: Uh, I understand that's yeah. painful, but uh, yeah, I, I, for my 45th birthday, there were like one friend of mine d- didn't show up, and of course, it's the person who. Uh, that person showing up would have given you a certain kind of validation. Not a, it wasn't like a fancy person to anyone else, right. but to me, it mattered, it, it, it mattered that, yeah. that that person showed up. And I remember being saying, sitting with Amy. It was this great night. All my friends except for this one person showed up, and Amy looked at me like, "What's wrong?" And I said, "Well, you know, that dude and uh, didn't show up." And then she basically, I'm sure, what your family said. She was just like, "Come on, like, yeah. have it just noticing all these people who,
1: who you love." Right. Right. Who were here. Yeah, yeah, And I, I I loved it and I had a great, a it was a, great, people it was a great,
0: great party. It is a curse of people yeah. who have to win, which I wanted to ask you about. Okay. too, because like, okay, so your um, rationality, pragmatism, ability to defer gratification, ability to figure out what the ultimate win is so that while other people might be looking um, for short-term endorphin hits, you're... Good at looking for the ultimate win, um, even if that means not satisfying the ego short term. But and it, but but um, and it's clear that like so figuring that stuff out gives you a certain rush. You like to execute a plan. You like to win. But what's like the part that's really the most fun for you? Like, what do you? What think, makes you feel
1: alive? In I all think this? it's two things. One is. um, kind of the sale, right? Which is my first job out of college, I was, Henry Stern was the New York City Parks Commissioner. He a sort of legendary, wacky figure. Um, and he loved doing stunts and getting attention. And I was his press secretary. And the thing I love about the job is if I could get seven TV cameras to come because we dressed him up like a shepherd and he led a, a flock of sheep across a sheep meadow, that was like a win, right? And depending on what page we were on in the Daily News the next day or New York One, or wherever it was, and I think, I've all that that tangible feeling probably report cards when you're a kid, and even now, I mean, when when we generate new new investors for our fund or new clients for our consulting business, the money at this point doesn't mean that much to me anymore. But the act of getting the client, I really like, even if I move on immediately once I've gotten it, right? So, so I think part of it is that, and then part of it also is, um, you know, I grew up with first generation American, so and and you know family from the Holocaust, and everyone kind of came to the U.S. over a period of decades. And there was all that typical pressure of, like, everyone sacrificed to get to America for you to be born here. You have to do great things, right? Now, turns out definitions of great things vary more than I understood at the time. But I think I always felt and internalized that pressure. Um, And as a result, always kind of had a big picture in mind of, these are the kind of things I want to achieve, which I think has always had me looking sometimes living too much in the future, by the way, but looking for the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, and paving the way towards that. Um, and so I think partly also that, you know made me able to really you know figure out what I wanted to do, think ahead, and kind of handle things at a younger age than I probably otherwise could have that kind of that
0: kind of hunger. Although it's different than what the politicians feel, there is a kind of oh, a yeah. ne- there is a kind of a need. Yeah, for sure. That you're wrestling with it feels One like. One
1: reason why I think in some ways the when I flipped my career basically to kind of working with and investing in startups to stop government from some squashing competition is Part of me said, I've learned too much about the system and like it too much to turn away from it, but I'm also totally repulsed by the way it happens. Let me just use this against them, right? And that's what happens. I mean, it's not that I'm not – like the the journal did a a piece on the book the other day and the reporter said to me, well, aren't you also an insider using what you learn? I said, I am. I'm just using it in a different way. I'm using it to fuck with these people as opposed to lobby them or whatever it is. But, yeah, essentially. So, yeah, I mean I think a lot of it is I just sort of figured out – Oh yeah, that's interesting. So th- th- I guess this is something I, uh, that's occurring to me as
0: you're talking, which is: big moments in the book happen because you were young and you got a new opportunity, or you were settled trying to do something, and suddenly you're with Travis, and it's an entirely new kind yep. of challenge. How much do you still? How much do you still to- need that, totally. man? I mean, so right, right. To feel. Um, so, I don't know how to do this. This is what turns me I on. Mean, so
1: every Sunday, I just came here from my office, um, I write a memo to my team, 10 to 15 pages, say, here's what's going on. Because there's all these different pieces of the business and I'm the only one that kind of really knows all of it and I want people to feel some sense of inclusion, right? When I look at the list, there are so many things we're doing that are, Interesting, but totally unnecessary. Like we're bidding to buy a casino in Las Vegas right now. Um, do I have any business owning a casino? Probably not. Hopefully, as that. part of your VC business. No, separately. Have a casino like a private company. equity place. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm funding it, and you know that involved and everything else. But I think we can build. A, I have a vision for a new type of casino that is really tech focused, really younger focused. You know, the Fanduel sports book. Esports, axe-throwing, first casino to not accept social security checks, you know, just a different, in some ways more socially conscious, but just a different type of facility that maybe I could then build out into a chain and then sell it or take it public or whatever it is. Right,
0: your experience with FanDuel... Yeah. And um, the other one tells- DraftKings, yeah. Y- you're very on top of this whole, what's going to happen to sports betting in yeah, the country and, and now? Yeah, and we're
1: working on, because we're investors in FanDuel we'll work with them, we're working on their sports betting license fights that's going to happen all over the country over the next couple of years. Are you going to be one of
0: the leaders of that?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're going to- How run, do we get
0: you to do poker for us? I need poker to happen.
1: I mean, it really depends on is each state, there's going to be a different combination. And in some states, the poker guys are going to be useful allies. And in some states, they're going to be a problem. And it's just going to kind of vary. So- We'll see, uh, but there might be some places, California, the poker rooms that could they could prove to be useful. Um, so uh, right, because you wrote rounders and all that, so that's that's your that's your sure
0: thing. Poker is important to me. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: So anyway, do I look? But as you you'll see if you read the book, I got really lucky in that when I started working with Uber, Travis called me up and said, "Hey, I can't afford your fees. You take equity." Thank God I said yes. Uh, it was and the fee, which you say yeah. in the
0: book, the smallest fee back then that you would have charged was 25000 yeah. a month.
1: So that, if and you're getting that over a couple of years from a Series A company, that then becomes worth $72 billion. If half of that scarce. is in, your, you
0: know, you say it went up 250 times. So, yeah. I mean, I did the math yeah. because it's easy to do from the book. Yeah. So you're talking about you made over $100 million yeah. from Uber, which is, uh, you know, you delayed
1: your gratification. Yeah, and by the way, I mean, SoftBank did a, a tender offer about 10 months ago, and I sold as much as I could because it was nice to put some money in the bank. But I still own a bunch of Uber that, you know, I don't won't probably see anything for for another 18 months or so. So, yeah, I mean, that's one of the challenges of ventures. It's really fast-paced. It's really exciting, and it's really slow at the same time. Did, no, did
0: making the fuck you money change anything internally? It certainly or if it did, in what ways did it?
1: It didn't make me less aggressive clearly, or less ambitious, I think what it did is it took a lot of the day-to-day agitation out of my life. Sure. What I've learned how to do pretty well is, and it's therapy and everything else, but like most things that go wrong on a minute-by-minute basis, they don't really, I don't sweat it anymore. And given that I've been lucky to make some money, I've also figured out how to say, this is how I want to spend my time. And I've outsourced everything else that I don't want to do, ranging from I probably have a lower profit margin in my company than I could because I have really good people and I pay them a lot of money because they're really good at their job. And that frees me up to do the things, new things that I want to focus on, like writing a book. Um, and also, just on a day to day level, and the, obviously being involved in the gig economy helps me understand this, but you can effectively outsource every conceivable. Task or chore possible, and between all of that, um, I'm able to really buy myself. And a so, lot of money time. helped. That so the money, the helps, helps money helps you that. think of that.
0: I'll say for people though, Tim Ferriss's book is still incredibly useful. The first book, The, yeah, the Four Hour work, work Week, week yeah. because you, although you can't do it quite in the way that you're doing it, I do think people can um, find more time at all, not at any economic level, but at many economic levels. There's a way that you can maximize the time you have to think by uh, figuring out how to pay a little bit for people to take care of a bunch of menial things for you.
1: Yeah, that and also I think most people could be more efficient if they'd really thought about how they use their time. Right? So how
0: do you think about how to use your time? I, was, I actually had that question so, written So the down. way I look at how it, How do you organize is, your day yeah, and your week and your it, It's a
1: weird—look, uh, it, I'm lucky that people who— their job is to help Yeah but you had to do this. that before but Yeah you had, for sure You had to come up with this before you had the people So, so the way I look at it but especially now as, as, a, as a parent and everything else there's 168 hours in the week Let's say there's 25 things I want to get done in that week. They just have to happen, right? And they don't necessarily have to happen between 9 and 5 or 5 and 9 or anything else. I might go to the gym at 2.30 in the afternoon. Um, I might go to my daughter's volleyball game at 3.30 in the afternoon. Um, But I very well may spend most of Sunday in the office, right? It's just shit has to get done, and I'm able to structure it in a way uh, that allows me to be really flexible and make it all happen. And what I figured out about myself over time – and again – this is probably the privilege of not having to really worry about making money anymore, is what do I like? So from a, a work perspective, I like politics and fighting, right, so we do lots of campaigns of different kinds. Um, I like turning pretty innovative, and I think our venture fund, for better or worse, is the only venture fund that is focused solely on investigating and working with startups in regulated industries. Um, I like to write, which is why I wrote this book, and you know I have a, a column, and a blog, and all that other stuff. Um, And uh, I like to feel pretty good about myself, which is why I have this foundation where we do two things. One, as you mentioned, is blockchain-based voting, and hopefully we can get into that a little bit, but basically so people can vote on their phones in elections, and the other is hunger, so we fund and run campaigns around the country to create universal school breakfasts. So we've passed bills in seven states now, about two and a half million kids, um, and also I do things like there's a soup kitchen across the street from my kid's school, and I try to stop by once a week and cut some onions and make some coffee and not have to be in charge or be smart and just kind of do something, right? Uh, I'm going to come with you and do that. Cool. I want to come with you in the right, next month. Thursday morning. Yeah. That, yeah, you'll tell me after yeah, this. Yeah, Um So, but what I realized is I need all those things, right? And I also need time to hang out with my kids and time to go to the gym and time to just have a date night with my wife and time where I want to go to a Mets game with a couple of friends and, and not worry about anything. How do you – so how do you so, organize it? What do you do? So how do you – Yeah. What I, what how do I you have craft that out for Within yourself. the world that I have – now, some of these lessons are probably followable and some are not, Right. I'm not a boss of any kind, right? I've, I, what I realized at some point in my life is, you know, there's are saying you do you, which actually makes sense to me. When I do me, it works pretty well. When I try to fit into someone else's structure, it usually doesn't. And that's true whether it's social or professional, right? So I have clients, I have investors, I have partners, but you know, I have... The base is so broad that any one of them could walk out at any given moment. It doesn't really make a difference one way or the other, which basically just gives me the freedom to schedule my day and my life how I see fit. That's number one. Number two, and this—if you do own a um, business—you can choose to hire really good people and pay them really well. We pay 100% of everyone's benefits. You know, unlimited sick time, vacation, whatever anyone needs. but they work really hard, right? And they deliver and they save me a lot of time. And if they don't perform, by the way, we do move people out, right? It's not a lifetime employment contract. It's just, if you're gonna be here, we're gonna treat you really well. We don't yell at people. Um, We're gonna pay you really well. And as long as you perform, that's your end of the bargain, right? So part of it is being able to sort of really focus on Recruitment, retention, culture, um, and not like in the cilia. Like, we don't do like bowling night because my view is people who are your adults, they work hard. If they want to bowl, by the way, I'm more than happy to say, take the company credit card and go buy yourself sure, lanes you and drinks. Yeah, yeah. But ultimately, you know, use your time how you see fit, right? Um, and so the culture is one that kind of, I guess, in the same way that I value my autonomy, it probably. Via everyone's autonomy, and I think that that works pretty well. So that's another way to do it. Third, as we discussed with money, is being able to sort of outsource any day-to-day stuff that you don't have to do um, to other people, and that that helps a lot. Um, And four is, you know, I think there are certain things that are, I don't know if they're time-wasting, but things that I tend to not do, right? Like there's a handful of TV shows I like, I watch them, but that's it. Otherwise, I don't turn on the TV, um, simply because it's not the – Originally because one was the best use of my time. What has changed a little bit now is it feels too passive for me most of the time. So like billions I could sit and watch, but most shows, I'm like, you know what? If I'm reading, I'm just like I'm just moving well, Billions is like about your world. I mean, yeah, our show I is can, about I the world work, in which- <laughs> I mean I know all the people in real life that the show is based on, or the people we think it's based on, right? Sure. But um Just for the record, it's not based on anybody. Yeah, of but yes, it's not, yes except yes, for of every extra guy that told yeah. me that it's based on them. Um but uh, right so you that's
0: yeah. what you do you um, yeah. the gym you have alone time yep and what is your private thinking time uh, do you shut yep. your Do you shut your office door? Do you no. journal? What's your um, Is it walks? Like so what's
1: uh, We got a dog a couple of years ago. I'd never yeah. had a dog before, and the the greatest thing for me at the dog is walking. In the, I mean, except when it's like eight degrees outside, that sucks. Sure. But when you put away those couple of situations, I find it incredibly freeing. And often I'll be listening to like a podcast, Bill Simmons, or whatever it is. But then I'm subconsciously thinking through whatever's on my mind. That's number one. Number two, one of the reasons that I like writing in column is. I can work out concepts where I have kind of a, a notion of something and kind of build it out, right? In fact, the problem for me tends to be I write fast and I want to get things done fast and I should take more time and build it out more. In fact, now I'm writing fewer columns and trying to write better columns. Um, but, um, but yeah, so it's it's a little bit of that. But it's also – I find, generally speaking – when I put words on paper, things are more likely to happen. I have a rigorous to-do list every single day. My day doesn't end until everything is crossed off the to-do list. So when do you write
0: that list? The night before or the morning right, The night before. And so I write before the next you go, okay, this is, is crucial list. for people, right?
1: Because yeah. this, they can, everybody can, can do, do this. this
0: yeah. Nobody can't do this. How long does that take? All
1: well, I'm is doing is- it a half the, hour that no, you're writing it down? That's probably, that's probably five, ten minutes because I'm looking at my schedule and copying out, even though it's already have a schedule, I copy out all the things and I look at everything I didn't achieve that day that seems like it still has to be worked on. And I put that in there. And anything else, like, hey, talk to so-and-so about this or You'll that, write all that shit I'll down. I'll write all that shit down. And then I spend the, S- the day kind of. So your schedule, you yeah. were saying. So you look at this list. So I look at the list. And I don't declare the day over. And, and the sad thing is, you know, when you declare the day over, there's still 50 more emails of come course. in. But um, until the next day's list is done— Every email has been dealt with. That may mean that I responded to it. It may mean that I forwarded someone else to deal with. It may mean that I decided it was wise to not reply to it, whatever it is, but it was considered. Every text, um, every voicemail, and once that's all cleared out and once that day's list is done and the next day's list is written, I consider the day over. Do you have
0: particular times that you will look at emails or are you doing it all day?
1: No, I'm either really good or really bad at email. I am re. I am very efficient on email. I generally try to reply almost immediately. Uh, I use Outlook, so I just hit the flag button for anything I can't deal with right now. And then what I find is, you know, a couple of times during the day, I'm on a conference call that requires my presence, but not my sort of active presence. If that makes sense, yes. Right, and. Uh, you can those, blow through them. That, yeah, that. I love those Apple ear, AirPods. Now I stick them in my ear, and that's, and then I'm my, both my hands are free. Sure. And I just go through, and I just clear them all out.
0: Which, by the way, that means if you deal with Tusk, uh, what you want is an in-person meeting, so he can has to focus has on to you <laughs> completely. <laughs> don't you don't want to be on one of those conference calls. calls with six people because uh, he's giving you as much of his brain as, as he needs to, and it's not uh, the full thing.
1: But that's not just me. Like, do you ever on a, on a in a meeting, to, but to, someone's dialing in, uh, and when as soon as they start talking, everyone pulls out their phone. It's the word well I want yes but that's you know it, it's highly inefficient but I think about that Mark McCormick thing
0: where he would never take a call you know Mark McCormick there yeah. wrote the things they don't teach at Harvard Business. Yeah. his thing was never take an incoming phone call have them write it down you can return it in two minutes right Never take an incoming phone call. It's a really like none of us are
1: disciplined like that, but it's a really really good smart idea. It's really smart. Well, but I'm sure I don't answer the phone if I don't if if there's a number I don't know. Of course, I never take the call. But the emails uh, we open our emails constantly
0: where and we open them and we respond. You know, and and it's not on our timetable. I do it. I'm terrible at it. Being on set forces me not to. When I'm shooting, do you not even have your phone in your pocket? I'll hand it to. It depends what we're doing, right? But there are big parts of the day that I will put my phone away and give it to somebody else especially if actors are working you're not going to be sitting there at the monitor while an actor's work and checking your disrespectful yeah checking you just can't right i mean you just can't do that but it's great
1: because it frees you forces you to focus do you meditate badly um so the problem for me is i i'm interested in happiness science uh i read a lot of books about it and articles and all of that and so i'm and i'm diligent right so make a list Meditation, something you should do to be happy. So then I sit there and I put on Headspace or Calm or whatever it is, and I try to say, "Focus, focus, focus, clear your mind." And of course, I make it much worse. And then
0: you feel like a failure.
1: Totally. So um, I have periods where I try to get into it, and then I have periods where I give myself a break. I'm on a break right now. Um, but well, I don't, the people I don't, at the people yeah. at home
0: can play the drinking game right now because I'm going to say, but you probably haven't tried TM because TM there's no, no fa- there, which is what I do every day. There's just no failure uh-huh. in TM. Yeah. Um, I Maybe gotta, I gotta fix go. that for you. Um, yeah, I gotta. Yeah, I gotta set you up with Bob Roth, teach you, and then you'll feel great. Um, because it's another time that I. It's a forced disconnection. How long do you do it for? Twenty minutes twice a day.
1: Twice it. So what's the first time I get sometime in the morning,
0: and then sometime before dinner. It doesn't matter when. Sometimes like today
1: I did at it your at two thirty. Staff nurses not to bother you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just that. say
0: to our assistants because Dave, Dave does, does it also. Too? Yeah. And so, now we don't always meditate. I'll say, partnership's great, right? So one of us can be dealing with something and the other one can be meditating. But we both find that we get so much more productivity and so much more clarity of thought. I solve so many problems coming out of meditation, so many very particular creative story problems. Not that when I'm meditating, I'm thinking about those things, but the mere act of the disconnection enables me to just be in a state of uh, better... A, in a state of flow and less anxiety ridden so for for me it's incredibly useful but those other kind of meditation would drive me crazy because they set up a failure they set up a goal and and to me it should be the opposite I talked to Dan Abrams who I'm sure you listen yeah. to about this yeah. because he does that other kind and um and I think that that's too difficult I want to talk about incentives a little yeah bit. Um, and and listen, folks, get this book and, and read it. The book reads like uh, fiction, and that it, it pulls you, it pulls you along. And, and we're talking here about successes. I love this about the book. <laughs> the, at, toward the end of the book, uh, there are a couple failures in a sure. row. Yeah, and I thought it was a great choice actually to resist the urge to just end with wins. Yeah, uh, you actually walk through two examples that that, that didn't yeah. work um and to try to give uh, the reader an uh, appreciation for uh, uh the the lessons you learned in, in, in those attempts. Yep. And I thought that was brave choice um and a good one. Uh so people should get the book and I, because we are jumping around be, uh in this conversation because there were so many things I wanted to touch on and get your take on. So how do you think we uh one reads your book and comes away thinking about incentives a lot? Incentives the way that sociologists, yeah. uh, sociological economic, uh, yeah. economists talk about, economy and that shit. Yeah. So how fucked up is our incentive system? And is it inevitable that the way in which politicians are incentivized uh, almost mandates the behavior that we see? Sure,
1: do? yeah. So so early in the podcast, we talked about this sort of desperation for affirmation and validation. I think that's always existed. Now, of course, it's not like you're a senator from Texas and it's the 1940s and you spend most of your time in Washington and you go back and maybe hold a couple of press conferences and you can sort of be a normal human being the rest of the time. You know, in the world of Instagram and Twitter and everything else, everything is moving at light speed. So effectively, you're talking to the public, you're talking to the voters, you're talking to the reporters in every single situation all day, every day. So it takes your absolute worst time and your worst instincts and puts them on Hyperloop, right? So... That's the problem. Uh, I do outline what I believe to be a solution in the book, and my hope is that a few people listen to this will think it's a decent idea. So, if you accept the fact that politicians pretty much only care about being reelected, which most people I think listen to this probably will accept that fact. So, so
0: then I'll just state what the conventional solution is term limits, right? That's the yeah. conventional solution, but they're never going to vote for it. Correct. It's very it's, hard. It's, it's to not do that. really enactable. Yeah. In fact, the only way to it might be this other thing that yeah, you want to do. And in
1: fact, just like on term limits, which I'm not even necessarily totally opposed to, but like in Ohio, for example, the House and the Senate are turned out, and literally they just go from two terms in the House to the Senate, and then they go back to the House. Like it's not it doesn't change, right? They're just playing musical chairs. That's all it is. Um, so if you accept number one, that politicians are going to do whatever it takes to get reelected, there's one piece of good news about that, which is they're highly adaptable because they don't really believe in that much other than their own ambition, and they're highly incentivized to respond to whoever it is that they think impacts their election, right? So the problem we have, though, right now is typical turnout in a primary, and this is true whether it's a mayoral primary, a congressional primary, anything other than, say, the presidential race, um, tends to be between 10 and 15%. So say that you are a Republican congressman from Florida, and you know you should be for an assault weapons ban, right? You know that. But turn out 12% in your race. 50% of those voters are NRA members. From a pure political standpoint, you have no incentive to be for it at all. It makes no sense whatsoever. So the question then becomes, what changes those incentives? And I don't believe that it's the campaigns that happen after the fact. They try to convince them that this is the right thing to do and the editorials and all that other stuff. I think you got to get to them. you got to change the inputs if you want to change the outputs. So we know what they care about. We know they're adaptable. What I found when we started running campaigns for Uber and FanDuel and, and Bird now um, is the same people who never vote in a primary, the other, say, 88%, uh, they do have smartphones. They're on apps. It's, I think we're up to about 80% penetration for adults in the U.S. and smartphones today. Um, and if we gave them a compelling message, like if you want to continue to be able to use Uber in Phoenix, press this button to, speak to, to email your city council member, they would do it. We had to make it compelling, we had to make it easy, but the same people who never vote were happy to advocate for a for-profit business um, if it was easy, right? So what that said to me was, if we can come up with a way to allow people to participate on their phone, instead of having to go to the polling place in a system that was built 250 years ago for an agrarian society, they'll probably do it, right? Because if turnout in that Florida primary goes from 12% to 60%, that NRA vote's not going to change much, right? So now they go from being 50% of that electorate to 10% of that electorate. And if you're that politician, what do you do? You vote for the Israel Weapons Ban, right? And by the way, this is true on the left also. It's true on both sides. You can get Democratic politicians to be less savage to the the far left and Republicans to be less savage to the far right. So- they ha- you have to force them to to represent the views of the mainstream so then the question is how can you actually conduct elections on your phone that's where blockchain comes in right so right now we're in a world where not only does no one participate but we have massive questions about election safety and security and to me blockchain offers two things one the way to bring voting to the masses and make it easy and, and, and doable and convenient. And also make it safer simply because at least right now, no one knows how to hack, hack blockchain. And the way blockchain works, which I'm sure your listeners already know, basically just imagine that one piece of information when it's transmitted from point A to point B is replicated on 50,000 different point, you know, point A's. And so and if any one of those get changed, you notice, right? So it's just you'd have to hack... 50,000 computers as opposed to one computer to change someone's vote. So as a result, it's just not really hackable. So we actually uh, just finished the West Virginia in the uh, May primary was the first state to try this out for deployed military. We just concluded another audit of it this past week. It works. You know, We, we keep subjecting to security audits and it works. So they all a long way of saying, if we have blockchain-based voting, we can get turnout to safely increase exponentially, which forces politicians to represent the mainstream, which means things like an assault weapon ban or basic things like I mean, they'll
0: argue, happen. they'll use all sorts of straw man arguments, people coming together for elections, all the things sure. that, uh, that what it was meant to be was that you have to have the initiative to go, you have to stand up. But, yeah, they, but, but, they also but really, this isn't, a le- right. this, no, this isn't a left-right thing <laughs> right. in my head, but it is clear that in the current political climate... The left wants more voters. The, the right wants fewer voters because the the established fewer older white voters right. are who the right wants. With the left the, wants everybody yeah. else. So how do you get – just from a yeah. uh, tactical standpoint, so look how
1: the, do you get past that? Look at the first one we did, deployed military from West Virginia. I got really lucky for, for two reasons. One, the Secretary of State of West Virginia is going to... And this is not for profit, just to be clear. Oh, yeah. this is, I, I just want people to understand this
0: is something you feel just, is best for the country. Yeah. This is Th- not for profit. Thanks for the
1: luck I had with Uber. I'm in a position to sort of pursue some big things. This is one of them. So um, Mac Warner is the Secretary of State of West Virginia. Mac served in the military. All four of his kids have served in the military. He rightfully is really frustrated that They're out there putting their lives on the line, literally, and soldiers die in Iraq and Afghanistan, places like that, to protect our right to vote. And then we don't bother to vote. And when they do vote, they mail it in and, like, it just gets tossed in the garbage. It's like a month after the election to get from, you know, Kandahar back to Cleveland. It's like, forget it. So— he had been looking for another way to give members of the military uh-huh. a way to vote. I don't know that he started off necessarily with the goal that I have of broad based participation. He was looking at it from a military perspective. But my first employee at my company, a uh, woman named Shelly Capito, her mom happens to be the U.S. Senator from West Virginia, Senator Shelly Capito, and their family is sort of totally embedded in the West Virginia government. So I just and I stayed friendly with them. I called over and said, Is there anyone in West Virginia that might be interested in this idea? And they said, Mac. And they called him, and all of a sudden I found my guy, and the next step was, could we do it in a way that didn't get us stuck in all the state RFP processes? And the answer was, yeah, I paid for it out of my pocket. And we were able to structure it in a way that didn't cost the taxpayers a dime. Um, we're doing it again for the general election, and I'm going to pay for it again. how many voters is it? Um, so it's just deployed military. So we're talking the, f- the first— uh,
0: West Virginian deployed, deployed military.
1: military. And we did it with two counties as the pilot. So we're talking about a universe of a couple hundred people. It'll be— they're going to announce this in a couple of weeks. I'm not going to say how many counties, but more counties, more counties. In, the, in the general election. And was there opposition? Not that much locally, because I think that it's really hard to say this person who's trying to avoid driving over or stepping on IED sure. you know, shouldn't have it easier to vote. How about we use facial recognition, finger biometrics? It's, it's a pretty rigorous process to be able to actually cast the ballot. Here's where the opposition has come in the existing voting companies the entrenched interests so voting is just like taxi it's just like you know the hotel is stopping airbnb the casino stopping fanduel in every industry you have your entrenched interests who haven't innovated for a very long time who are terrified of change probably rightfully so because they probably won't survive it quite frankly um and they poo all over it so that's number one. Number two are these sort of election security academics at Michigan or Florida or whatever it is, where I think for them mainly it's the Wall Street Journal calls them and says, what do you think of this thing that Tuscan West Virginia are doing? If they say, yeah, it seems like a good idea, they don't get quoted. They get quoted if they say this is very dangerous, this is a threat. You know that. That's how they become relevant. And in the same way that you identified that I needed that affirmation and validation even after I left politics. Um, so do academics. So do most people, right? I mean, we're two guys sitting here with microphones. We all do. Right, on a Sunday. Right. right. I yeah. mean, so uh, we we
0: all yeah. need so, some of that. So,
1: so they're opposed. But you know what? I'm not worried about either of those sectors because the, the academics aren't particularly powerful. And we've beaten the entrenched interests in almost You every can also,
0: history. some of the academics you can also rope in because actually the first ones who come out – enormously in favor of this idea we'll get that big yeah hit. in fact
1: we just agreed to a partnership with the University of Chicago the Harris School of public policy where they're going to work with us on this idea and they're going to start to really study it and,
0: and I think it's a, it. I think it's a great idea right. uh, I want but here's the big of voters yeah the
1: status Quo of politics. This is not in your interest, right? And this is true whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. If you're in office, right, because you're saying, "I figure out how to game the system. I won power. I know how to win re-election if things stay as they are. If turnout increases exponentially." Well, no, I, I think today I it. think
0: the left. Uh, I think the left wants more working people for whom it's hard to get to the polls to vote.
1: Yes.
0: Even people in office, even incumbents.
1: W- we'll see, right? You are being. Um, If you are, say, the left in terms of people who are thinking over a 10, 20-year strategic period, I think you're absolutely right. Um, If you're thinking about people who say, I need to win my next re-election in two years, different ballgame. Right. You think? think I think your average elected official is going to be scared of it. And by the way, if you are a lobbyist. A union, a trade group, if you're anyone that really just benefits disproportionately from a low turnout system because you can wield ex, you know power, size power you don 't want change right all of a sudden, your two million dollars you can throw into the race becomes a lot less meaningful if you're trying to influence you know four hundred thousand voters as opposed to forty thousand
0: so as I said um, you don 't take pains in the book to paint yourself as more moral on the other hand, it is clear that you were able to retain uh uh, your perspective on right and wrong throughout this whole thing.
1: I think that's what... I'll t- talk about Illinois. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> and and so, well, Illinois, but, but in all, in, yeah. in many of these things, it seemed you had a pretty keen awareness of where the lines of acceptable behavior were and the lines of
1: behavior that wasn't necessarily acceptable. Yeah, it's called having a conscience and not being an idiot. I mean, right? yeah, but often people think that's not really a, an, an asset in the line of work. You know, it's funny. So they think that, just like there's a point in the book that... that I talk about um, spin and kind of political communications and kind of what I learned from my Wolfs, Wolfson, who I think is the smartest person I've ever met in that, in that field. And what I learned from time is the best spin is not like, oh, I'm so clever, I'm going to deploy this tactic or that. It's no spin, right? If you can just explain to a reporter, here's what happened, here's why we did it, here's what we tried to achieve, and we succeeded, we failed, whatever it is, 90% of the time, that's fine with them. They're like, okay, I just want to know what happened and I don't want to be bullshitted, right?
0: Yeah, that story you tell about the way you figured out you and Howard figured yeah, out to Howard. elect Bloomberg. Yeah. To, to, yeah. Well, oh yeah,
1: no, I, mean, I think they meant the Wayne Barrett story. But,
0: yeah, yeah, that that. But the, the 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 idea that when you brought that one reporter into the conversation, you had him embargo the story. Yep. Michael
1: Barbaro, he but, hosts the Daily Now.
0: Right, but yeah. you brought him in, but and told him what you were doing, which was not exactly suppressing the vote, but basically chilling anyone else's interest in trying to compete who could have won. Yes,
1: yeah, so it's a fair way
0: to put it. And chilling their enthusiasm for Thompson. Uh, and that, the, the way in which you br- then got the story out, I thought was uh, really just brilliant. I loved reading that. I mean, so much of the book is like uh, the way my characters, Dave and my characters, think right. on our show. Yeah. Which is this game theory optimal sort of way of moving it's through f- life.
1: It's fun, by the way. You know, moving the chess pieces is is, is really fun. In fact, you had a scene, because I happened to have walked by it. I dropped my son off at camp where Paul Giamatti was sitting in Washington Square Park playing yeah. chess. I remember it walking by and seeing him sitting there. You guys were filming. I know, oh, that's you were there funny. Yeah, I was and then there, I, of course. And then I, was I saw there it on the whole show day, yeah. as well. But you know what I thought in a weird way? I didn't think highly of it. And you know what? I was like, he's playing three-dimensional chess all day long. This is beneath him. He doesn't even need to. Now, I, the scene had a purpose in moving Yeah, but he was meeting long. somebody there. I yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. it was sort of like almost like, this guy's he, playing a chess at a tour. Yeah, no, he is. Of level, course, right? he says
0: in the first episode of the show, he's you got to play three dimensional yeah, chess. He yeah, completely it, right. The game itself doesn't matter. But the thing you said that was just key is, and it's something we tell every actor who comes on our show is: these people love the game, yeah. even when it's difficult, even when it seems like they're going to lose, even when it seems like their liberty might be at stake, they actually feel the most alive. Yeah, when they're in the pursuit of playing this game perfectly.
1: Most people who spend careers in politics. Um, if not for politics, would probably be heroin addicts, alcoholics, gambling addicts, simply because that same need Mm -hmm. of rush of excitement that you do get from politics, um, most people who aren't in that line will need it some of the way, and they get it from substances. Two final things.
0: Yeah. Um, Something I talk about on this show a lot, that artists, um, right up until the moment that they succeed, till they've made it or till someone buys their work, uh, they might be delusional. and the line between being delusional and really being an artist is very thin. Yep. Uh, and with founders of companies, yep. uh, it's similar in a way. H- how have you learned to, or how would you articulate how you know which ones are which? And then how do you think the, the, the individual themselves know?
1: Yeah, so first thing, every venture capitalist makes tons of bad bets, right? So yes. you frequently don't know. Uh, We've been really lucky in Fund 1 that we got in early in companies like Bird and Lemonade and Coinbase and whatnot. So we've done pretty well. Um, But we'll still screw up plenty of stuff. I have no doubt about that, even if we haven't yet. Um, So this is how we tend to look at it, which is, should we put, say, a million dollars in the Series A of this company? Number one, what do we think of this idea? Is this a big transformative idea that can really change and disrupt an industry. And part of it's going to make a lot of money, but part of it's going to just blow... A good VC just likes blowing shit up, right? That's part of what makes... And that's why, by the way, the transfer from politics to venture capital wasn't that hard in a way because there's a lot of the same skill sets and and personality traits. Number one is how, how big is this idea? Two, how big is what we call the TAM, the total addressable market? So it may be a really big idea, even take voting, right? It's a huge idea. I don't know that those startups doing blockchain voting are going to be the next Uber. Um, so that the addressable market's much smaller. So how big is the addressable market? Um, what's the founder like? Crazy's okay, right? Some of our best founders are crazy, but how passionate are they? How intense are they? You know, how willing are they to die on the hill for this thing? And, and the good ones always are. Um, and then four, you know, the underlying technology itself does it work? Does it not work, or at least could it theoretically work? And then fifth, and this is really just specific to our fund, is, is there something that if we could accomplish politically, either solve a problem or create an opportunity, can create exponential growth for the company? Sure. And if you, you can know,
0: figure out where that leverage is. Yeah,
1: we can get that sports betting license. We can make you know scooters legal in New York. You know, we can get Lemonade their insurance license in every state. Whatever it is. That's the gating factor.
0: When scooters are legal, motorized scooters in New York, yeah. will the Segway come in with it, do you think?
1: You know, I, so we are investors in a startup called Bird, which is the fastest yes. company ever to a, a billion dollar valuation. And you know, there's this cautionary tale of Segway, right? Which sort of had the same kind of thing, and then and then literally exploded, basically, and and ended in, in the early 2000s. Um, and so I often kind of wake up in the middle of the night, worried that we're just the next Segway. But I don't, I don't think so. No, um, but if you get the, if you get them in, do oh, you think Segways come behind you? I don't know if they still exist. I mean, you could get some on eBay, maybe. I don't know. Can you only? You think you can only get them on eBay? I know this. You can hop on a bird for 15 cents a minute in many places. When's it going to happen here in Manhattan? So um, we uh, announced legislation in the city council a couple of weeks ago. Corey Johnson, city council speaker, came out for it. The New York Times editorial board has already endorsed it. The Daily News has already endorsed it. Um, the state has sort of at least seemed pretty supportive of it. Um, the Bosnian administration may be a little less so, but I feel pretty good that we're going to get this thing done. And if you look at the cap that the council just imposed on ride-sharing, they can't say... We're doing this in the name of congestion mitigation, and then not allow a formal congestion mitigation of scooters oh, to exist.
0: I hadn't thought of this question, but I have to ask it. Yeah. So, okay, you uh, you you go hard at De Blasio. You win one, you lose one. Well, I didn't do the second one. Okay, so you win one. <laughs> but, but, okay, yeah. but, but even more to the point. Yeah. But now you uh, let's say you don't need his his help, but right. it would be good to have it. Yeah.
1: What's your – how do you think about it's, that? Do you send emissaries in? Like, what do you yeah. do to do – how does so that work? A part of it depends on the psychology of the politician. Right? So taking Andrew – If there's a highly transactional one, you can move through it. If they're highly transactional, there are also people who, you know, just like people in life, the truth is they respect you more when you beat them up than when you kiss their ass. So there are – like, Andrew Cuomo is an incredibly tough guy. He's the governor of New York. Probably will remain the governor of New York. Um, you know, Andrew can be transactional – But Andrew also really likes to fight, and if he sort of respects that you're going to bring the fight to him, you're more likely to get a good outcome than if you're just obsequious to him, right? Um, With de Blasio, so I also, besides Uber ran an independent expenditure campaign in 2016-17 to try to knock him out of City Hall, um, didn't succeed because my whole strategy was predicated on that someone in his administration would be indicted. Indictments, yeah. Nobody was, even though other people have pled guilty to bribing de Blasio, so I still don't entirely understand how this all went down. Um, but I ended up, I was like the single biggest spender in the election as a result. So there's a little bit of like, okay, we know what we can do to each other, kind of wariness. Um, and there are some people on my team who do have relationships at City Hall. So for example, Chris Coffee, who runs our New York practice, just got the new rules passed to move horse carriages into Central Park. Got them off the streets. The fight had been going on forever. They hired Chris and I class about a year ago to take this thing up. So what? Tell, what's the difference? So, so Blasio just proposed rules, I think it was about a week and a half ago, that said a horse carriages can no longer be on any street in New York City. They're solely confined to within the boundaries of Central Park. And that's And that it. passed now? So it's a 90-day rulemaking process. Uh, but it's administrative rules, so there's no real reason its own administration won't validate His proposal. So that will happen. It will happen. So, you know, and that was a fight that lots of people who were really nice to de Blasio had been trying to get that done for years. So, you know, I'm not sure, generally speaking, that there's that much of a relationship between how you treat a politician and what the outcome is. Because, again, if you go at the underlying point of this entire podcast, they're looking at it from, does this help me or hurt me, right? That's it. And if I can ultimately say, if you don't do what I want, I'm going to imperil your chances of re-election. Or if you do what I want, I'm going to make you look really good and it's going to help you. They're always going to choose that over, I fucking hate Tusk, which, by the way, they probably say all the time.
0: Right. Also, uh, it's not just politicians, right? You can apply these tactics almost anywhere in life. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because the uh, pain, pleasure as motivators are hardwired in us. Yeah. It's primal, right? Yeah,
1: it's it's fun to think about
0: Lastly, how yeah. do you
1: uh, how do you define success for yourself
0: now at this <sighs> stage of your life? Yeah.
1: So I mean to me it's a few things. One is um and this sounds corny or fake, but it's like, am I having some sort of impact on the world, which is partly you feel good when you help people. I think, remember, you guys had a scene where the, the, the guy that was doing the Giving Pledge and he was trying to convince Axelrod that you know at a certain point, you just to feel good about yourself, you have to do these kinds of things. I think that's true. I also just have always had this like incredibly outsized ambition and ego, and I like to think that I'm having an impact on the world. So like when I can help create blockchain voting or pass a law and a million more kids get access to school breakfast, I feel good about myself. Maybe it's ego. Maybe it's genuine goodwill and, and good intentions, but either way, that's one. Two, um, are we blowing shit up, right? So, like, part of the whole fun of our venture fund and our business is, you know, can we take all of these new technologies that the entrenched interests don't want to see happen, and the politicians, if they could, would just do the bidding of their donors with the entrenched interests, and allow it to flourish and stop them from not not let them get away with imposing artificial limits on Airbnb or Uber or whatever it is. So, part of it is that. Part of it is. Um, a, can I sort of stimulate myself intellectually through book, column, podcast, whatever it is? And then two, can I get other people to actually – so like if I had written this book and it didn't get published, I don't know. I feel pretty good right now because it's, it's – I don't know if anyone's going to buy it, but it's cool that I wrote a book. It's cool that it's being published. Right. That gives, that gives you a huge it's, sense of satisfaction. Yeah, it of course. Like so, Right? Well, it should. So there's some of that also. Um And then, you know, there's that general metric of, you know, everyone says the most important thing is my family, and they kind of mean it, and they kind of don't, but one thing I'm pretty good about is calling bullshit on myself, and so, you know, when I have priorities like be home at 6.30 for dinner with the kids, or drop them off at school, whatever it is, like, I'm pretty good at sticking to those.
0: The greatest distinction I made in my life, uh, bar none, was when, at a certain point when our kids were very young, I realized that any day I wasn't on set, I was going to walk our daughter to school. Um, yep. Spend time in the morning with both of them, but Sammy got on a bus, but right. Anna, her high school was and her gym, elementary and yeah. age, was a walk. I walked every day. It's the it is yeah life. It's a life changing thing to do. Five minutes. Yep. Life changing. Yeah, we're thing.
1: three blocks from the school, but it, it's a it's it is a, a
0: that yeah. you will develop with your kids a level of trust and intimacy that almost nothing can replace. Yeah. It's amazing. Totally.
1: Um, Listen, where can people find you online? So um, the BradleyTusk.com would have a lot of information about the book itself. Does that have your blog? It it does. Does Uh, it link to your podcast? It links to to everything else. Uh, Obviously, the book's available, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everything else. Um, I hope you'll be one of the Are you on Twitter or Instagram? Yep, uh, at BradleyTusk on Twitter. I'm not on Instagram. Um, And then we've got a bunch of businesses. So if you go to TuskHoldings.com and you said, hey, what's that thing he's doing in casinos or investing or tech campaigns? There's a lot more detail about all of that.
0: Great. Bradley Tusk, uh, find him online. Read this book, The Fixer. It is an excellent look at the state of play at the intersection of tech and politics, which is really where the whole world of business is living yeah. uh, right now in, in, in 2018. Bradley, thanks cool. for doing thanks this, man. Me, man. All right. Hey, you can find me at Brian Compliment on Twitter. You can email me at themomentbkgmail.com. Do not email me uh, ideas for businesses to pass on to Bradley because <laughs> um, I won't. All right, everybody. See you next time.